Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 77. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on June 23rd, 2022 in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. So 411 years ago today, Henry Hudson's mutinous crew put the explorer, his son, and a few loyalists adrift in a boat in the still icy bay that would be named after him. They were never heard from again. One moral of that story is that a captain at sea should take care to ensure that at least most of his crew stays loyal. Probably not as easy as it sounds. This episode is the first of a pair about the momentous year of 1619 in Virginia, including whether it was, in fact, momentous. And no, don't get your dukes up. I'm not going to bash the 1619 project in this series. I may address it at some point in a sidebar, but I am not much for being baited into culture war controversies and want to keep them away from my timeline episodes. So, as usual... And we'll talk about 1619 in Virginia as I do everything else, without drawing conclusions for the present. That is for you to do, based not just on what I say, but also on everything else you have read and learned for your entire life. I'm not going to lead you to conclusions on your individual journey of history. Your conclusions are all on you. Before we get there, though, let's talk about 1618. In the years before, Pocahontas has died, and her father, the paramount chief Powhatan, Powhatan, will pass at some point during 1618. By one account, Chief Powhatan's body would have been gutted, its flesh removed and the bones dried. The skeleton would then be restored and replaced inside the skin, the cavities filled with sand and valuables and sutured so as to give the appearance of living. The body would then be wrapped in a buckskin and would lie in state in a special funeral building overseen by the shamans. In other words, Powhatan probably became a mummy of sorts. Powhatan's brother Itoyatan succeeded him as paramount chief in name, but Itoyatan was a weak leader, and de facto power passed decisively to Powhatan's kinsman Opa Kankanaw. Historians disagree on whether Opakankana was one and the same person as Paquaquinio Don Luis, who had spent years among the Spanish and slaughtered the Jesuits who set up a mission on the Chesapeake in 1577. If the two men were the same, Opakankana would have been in his early 70s by 1618, and it would turn out he would remain capable as a war leader for years to come. Elsewhere in North America... The epidemic that destroyed the indigenous population along the New England coast was in its fullest fury. Tisquantum, perhaps the only survivor of the town of Patuxet, which had been named Plymouth by John Smith in 1616 on his map of New England, was in Newfoundland, where he would meet Thomas Dermer. Dermer realized that an Anglophone Algonquin would be incredibly useful in the colonization of New England. He may also have heard of the epidemic and thereby seen an opportunity to exploit the weakness of the Indians along the coast. That's not clear. Regardless, Tisquantum and Dermer would sail back to England and get 
backing to return to Squantum to his country. A group of Brownists, separatists from the Church of England, lived in Leiden, the Netherlands, under William Bradford and William Brewster. They'd been there for 10 years, and while they had notional freedom to practice their religion, they were beginning to consider whether they should move somewhere else, their eyes turning toward America. Not only were they concerned that their children were growing up Dutch. There are only two things I can't stand in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. The English authorities continued to pursue them. Brewster had printed several tracts that had pummeled the Church of England and the English king, James I. In 1616, James ordered an international manhunt to find and arrest Brewster and other separatist pamphleteers. With the help of the Dutch, who had at this point moved beyond their Elizabethan-era alliance with England, Brewster went underground and evaded English agents. The long arm of English law would tip the decision of these pilgrims to leave Holland for North America. Elsewhere in Europe, in May 1618, Protestant Bohemians hold a mock trial and throw a couple of German governors and their scribe out of a window into a pile of manure. This was the famous defenestration of Prague, and it would plunge Central Europe into the extraordinarily bloody Thirty Years' War. That long religious struggle would open huge rifts in English politics, which in turn would put an end to the Virginia Company's control of its settlements along the James River. That story will be the subject of a future episode, unless my muse informs me otherwise. The Peace of Pocahontas and Powhatan at the end of the First Anglo-Powhatan War in 1614 had ushered in something like a golden age for the English in the Chesapeake. There had been four or five settlements or outposts outside of Jamestown even before then. But by the end of 1618, there were more than 32 little English dots on the map, small towns, forts, or plantations, running from west of today's Richmond to Keketon on the north bank of the James just as it flows into the Chesapeake. We, or at least I, do not know the number of people in these odd little points on the map in 1618, but a census of the colony in early 1620 counted 892 Europeans in Virginia, including a few on the eastern shore. That was up from the 351 Europeans that John Rolfe had counted in the first half of 1616 before he and his famous wife traveled to London to promote the good fortunes of the colony. The rapid growth of English settlements in the region during this golden age had many fathers. The Peace of 1614 was crucially important because fewer English would die quickly after arriving, even though they would still continue to die in shocking numbers because it would give the English the security to plant food and tobacco outside the walls of their forts, and because it was easier to attract new settlers, and especially women, to something akin to domesticity rather than war. Many of those dots on the map were plantations, where planters and workers and servants live. There were, however, other reforms that would promote growth in the colony. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, the original purpose of the Virginia Company was, first and foremost, mercantilist. In the words of James Horn, 
whose book, 1619, Jamestown and the Forging of American Democracy, is one of the main sources of this episode. Quote, Company leaders summarized their objectives to Lieutenant Governor Sir Thomas Gates shortly before he left for Jamestown in the Third Supply. That would have been early 1609, roughly. Four major priorities were identified that they believed would lead to continuing investment and commercial success. One, the discovery of either the South Seas or valuable mines. Two, trading with Indian peoples near and far who were accessible by water. Three, tribute from local Indians. And four, the production of natural commodities. Back to me, the potential incompatibility of items two and three, trading with Indians and seeking tribute from Indians, did not occur to the Virginia Company. Or, maybe, the contradiction in those priorities was, as is so often the case, the product of bureaucratic compromise. Regardless, after the departure of John Smith in 1609, That contradiction would lead to a war with the Powhatan Confederacy that would not end until 1614. The brutal conditions and profound mismanagement in those first seven years, arduously recounted in our 11 episodes on Jamestown and the Powhatans, made it very difficult for the Virginia Company to raise capital. It also meant that the company needed to recruit support by any means necessary. They enlisted the Anglican clergy, who promoted a fifth purpose, the conversion of the indigenous peoples of North America to Protestantism. This was important to England and the Anglicans geopolitically, insofar as it would interdict the possibility that North America would become Catholic, as it happened elsewhere in the hemisphere. And that would improve England's position in the ongoing sectarian struggles that had been erupting in Europe ever since the great religious wars of the 1500s. That sounds more cynical than it in fact was, for the passionate English clergy and their flocks genuinely believed that in so doing they would be saving the Indians from eternal damnation. In very rough terms, Virginia Company aficionados will find much to quibble with, The political infighting within the company leadership revolved around two factions. A reform faction led by Sir Edwin Sands, spelled S-A-N-D-Y-S, who wanted to reform the governance of the colony and rights and land of the settlers, and a more hawkish group that wanted to maintain the martial law and top-down governance that had prevailed since the third supply arrived in the summer of 1609. Taking great liberty with nuance, the Sands Reform Program also called for a peaceful approach toward the Indians of the region. His was a comprehensive vision of long-term settlement, in some ways similar to Samuel de Champlain's vision for New France. The Peace of 1614, the rising commercial success of the tobacco trade, and the conversion and marriage of Pocahontas would shift the power toward Sands. By the time John and Rebecca Rolfe arrived in London in the fall of 1616, sentiment for the company's prospects had turned decidedly bullish, and that paved the way for the reforms of 1618 and 1619. Sands would become treasurer of the Virginia Company in 1619, formally now the top dog. 
One other high-altitude point bears mentioning, in case it's not obvious to even long-standing listeners. Because the settlement of Virginia had been at the behest of a corporation, albeit one with royal imprimatur, initially there was no concept that the rights of Englishmen, as it were, extended into the New World. The original charter had established mechanisms for resolving disputes that looked like English trials, but that was about it. The settlers had no real rights, even or especially in the property they tilled. They were, in effect, working for the company on what were essentially collective farms. That had begun to change with the end of the First Anglo-Powhatan War, but only informally. Let's go to Horn's account, quote, Toward the end of the war in 1614, Sir Thomas Dale had been forced to allow some of his men their own land as a means of encouraging increased food production. He had initially tried to compel them to work harder by adopting tough measures to supply the common store, but after several years, it was clear the effort had failed. Most of them avoided work at all costs, actively hoping to bring about the collapse of the colony, and their return home. With little personal incentive to produce more than the bare minimum, yields remained perilously low. When our people were fed out of the common store, planter and publicist Richard Hamer explained, and labored jointly in the manuring of the ground and planting corn. Glad was that man that could slip from his labor. Nay, the most honest of them in a general business would take so much faithful and true pains in a week as he now will do in a day. Finally, Dale divided his men into companies and permitted some of them to raise crops of their own and tend livestock. Then he allotted small holdings, three or twelve acres of cleared land to those in the nature of farmers who had completed seven years' service to the company and were granted their freedom. As long as they provided for their own households and agreed to serve in the local militia when required, they were permitted to work for themselves 11 months of the year. The 12th month, they were obliged to work for the company in respect of the common good. They were also allowed to grow tobacco or other crops if they maintained two of the three acres under corn. In this way, the colony quickly became self-sufficient. Three men, Hamer reported, producing as much as 30 had previously and the settlers thereby not only able to support themselves, but potentially to provision hundreds of new arrivals the company was planning to send over. By the end of 1614, approximately 90 independent smallholdings had been created in the colony. Dale's new course was the first tentative acknowledgement by the company that if settlers were permitted to work partly for their own profit, food production would increase significantly back to me. Nevertheless, it remained the case that these new smallholders did not actually own their land, even according to the English, never mind the Indians. That would require a policy change that would not come until the spring of 1616, when the company would announce that it would allocate Virginia's lands to individuals. The whole thing sounded a lot like a Kickstarter deal. People who had been at the colony for at least seven years would get 50 acres, and investors, whether from earlier or later financing rounds, would get 50 acres per share invested, with a less than ironclad promise of another 150 acres on the come. 
Land so granted would be on either side of the James near existing settlements, so there was some measure of security, and the grantees would be able to leave the land to their heirs. There were also vast grants given to big investors and influential people. Heavy hitters like Samuel Argyll, appointed deputy governor in 1616-1617, and George Yardley, the former deputy governor, received grants of 2,400 acres. There were others of similar size and even much larger, running 80,000 acres or more to syndicates of merchant investors. These big grants ran as vast plantations or groups of plantations and effectively ran themselves without much involvement of the Virginia Company. They had offices in England, recruited their own settlers, raised their own capital, and hired their own ships. They were, in effect, becoming separate centers of power. And by 1618, they were all growing tobacco, much to the frustration of the Virginia Company, whose leadership regarded it as a passing fad. All of this granting of land, whether in small holdings or in vast plantations, increased the interest of new investors and settlers in Virginia. It remained the case, though, that the legal basis for these grants was nothing other than corporate policy, with no more permanence than a promised 401k match. And often the grants were made arbitrarily, according to the fancy or corruption of the local governors in the moment. Even once granted, the common law of England did not apply in Virginia, so the landholders did not have title in the same sense that any English or, for that matter, any modern American homeowner would recognize as such. An aggrieved landowner would have, at best, a cause of action for breach of contract. Now, James I, as king, was source of law and authority in England and its dependencies. He had, notionally, power over all things, including over Englishmen overseas. But English kings were not tyrants. Their power was limited by English precedent, rights and property, the common law of England more broadly, and statutes passed by Parliament. In Horne's words, a form of mixed rule that distinguished Christian kings from tyrants. Here's how Horne describes how this worked in Virginia. Quote, Significantly, however, these limitations applied only in England, not to overseas colonies. Parliament and the common law had no jurisdiction in Virginia, although the principle of common law would be asserted in the colony after 1618. English lands beyond the seas, historian Ken McMillan writes, were ruled by the king alone rather than the king in parliament, an absolute right that would have profound consequences for the colony and ultimately all of British America. Back to me. This business of governing overseas empires is not simple. And as we all learned in the sidebar on the insular cases, we Americans struggle to reach the right balance even to this day. It all ties together. The important part, which would echo in the revolutionary era 150 years into the future, was that Virginia was subject to the Crown's authority, but not that of Parliament. Enter now Sir Edwin Sands, who by 1618 was running the Virginia Company in all but name, and would rise to the actual top spot, that of treasurer, in 1619. To put it in contemporary terms, Sands had concluded that the Virginia Company had struggled in part 
because it was always in firefighting mode. It managed problems poorly as they came up, all the way from London. When word of them would arrive weeks or months after the fact, and remedial orders would take more weeks to sail back. Sands had decided that the Virginia Company needed a systematic reform of its governance so decisions could be made better locally. The reforms of 1619 were captured in a series of orders from the company to its new governor, Sir George Yardley, in November 1618, and together constitute the Great Charter, designed to establish government in Virginia based on the rule of law. Just for the fun of it, let's look at an old-school historian's account of the moment George Yardley sailed for Virginia, published by W.W. Henry in the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography in July 1894. Quote, This commission, the real Magna Charta of Virginia, was issued on the 28th of November, 1618. That night, a flaming comet appeared in the heavens, which was considered then an ill omen, but which might more properly have been taken as a heavenly recognition of the great boon which had been bestowed on America. The comet was visible till the 26th of December, and the prevailing superstition prevented the sailing of Governor Yardley till it was safely departed. He therefore sailed with his commission and instructions the 29th of January, 1619, more than a year before the sailing of the pilgrims. I'm not sure that's great scholarship, but I do like the competitive spirit, the great boon which had been bestowed upon America. The Great Charter included all sorts of detailed instructions to Yardley to solve immediate problems, including a directive to consolidate the various landowners into new jurisdictions called cities or boroughs. The first four would be, from west to east, Henrico, Charles City, Jamestown, and Kecaton. These boroughs would handle local law and order, probably as unincorporated towns in England would have done. Now let's go to Horn. Quote, the boroughs were to be responsible, among other duties, for overseeing the public lands, encouraging the company's economic plans and maintaining lists of the living and the dead, as well as marriages and christenings. Boroughs and particular plantations would have their own monthly courts for all small and petty matters and would be responsible for the enfranchisement of male landowners, tenants, and servants to allow them to vote for their local representatives to sit in the General Assembly. Back to me. The reforms of 1619 also included, as just mentioned, a General Assembly and a Council of State. The Council of State was appointed by the company to work with a governor, who would now be a first among equals, a sharp departure from the rules that had prevailed since the summer of 1609. The Council of State would, among other things, be the colony's Supreme Court, and would in that capacity be known as the General Court. In that capacity, it would draw upon the full body of English law to settle disputes that rose above the level of the borough courts. The Council of State was, in the end, the principal means for investors in the Virginia Company to influence governance. The General Assembly represented settlers as opposed to investors, and it was actually representative insofar as the system enfranchised men who owned or rented land to elect representatives 
known as Burgesses, to the assembly. Back to Horn, quote, The assembly was unquestionably a representative body. In late June 1619, Sir George Yardley sent writs to the colony's corporations and private plantations ordering the selection of two sufficient men from each jurisdiction to be decided by male freeholders and tenants by a plurality of voices. Called Burgesses, an acknowledgment of their role as representatives of the newly founded boroughs, they were to join the governor and his council in a single body at Jamestown, following the maxim that every man will more willingly obey laws to which he hath yielded his consent. Planters would henceforth be able to participate in government and promote measures for their own and the general good. Settlers, the leadership believed, could not object to company policies if they were given an opportunity to consider them by way of their representatives' deliberations in the assembly. Convened on Friday, July 30th, 1619, the assembly met in the heat and humidity of a typical Virginia summer. Thirty men gathered in the newly built church at Jamestown. Governor Yardley, his four counselors, Samuel Maycock, Captain Nathaniel Powell, John Rolfe, and the secretary of the colony, John Poory, and 22 Burgesses, representing the four corporations, those would be the boroughs, and seven private plantations. Yardley acted in the capacity of president, overseeing deliberations and exercising the powers of veto, adjournment, and dissolution. He probably selected Poory for the office of speaker before the assembly convened, and the appointment was confirmed before the proceedings got underway. The assemblymen adopted English parliamentary procedures from the start, determined not to be perceived in London as a mere local council on the fringes of the English-speaking world. Back to me. Pory, in particular, was one of those very impressive English adventurers who had done a tremendous amount in his life. W.W. Henry wrote in 1894, quote, Pori had been educated at Cambridge and was an accomplished scholar. He was a disciple of the celebrated Hacklite, who left the highest testimonial to his learning. He had been a great traveler and had published in 1600 a geographical history of Africa, which contained a good account of Abyssinia, a map of Africa, and a tracing of the Nile from an inland lake. Having served in Parliament, he was able to give order to the proceedings and proper form to their acts. I would add, for what it's worth, that the presence of such an accomplished person as Pori is at least some measure of the importance of the settlement of Virginia in the zeitgeist of the English aristocracy by 1619. It was, in fact, an absolute backwater Surely Pori could have lived more comfortably in London, or more exotically elsewhere in the Old World. But he went to Virginia. Anyway, Horn recounts the first order of business, which was to determine whether the Burgesses were lawfully seated. There were challenges to the seating of the representatives from two plantations. In one case, because a plantation had not received explicit permission from the Virginia Company to settle... Those Burgesses were seated on the condition that the plantation in question register its land with the company, essentially agreeing to abide by its rules before the next session. 
The assembly rejected, however, the representatives from another plantation, which had an old agreement that exempted it from compliance with company laws. Both confrontations amounted to a calculated assertion of governmental authority by the company, another significant step toward the rule of law on the Chesapeake. That accomplished, the assemblymen considered a series of foundational tasks and divided into committees to complete them. They were to review the charters, laws, and privileges confirmed by the instructions to Yardley. Consider which of the pre-existing orders of the predecessor governors should be preserved and rendered into actual laws. Consider private matters brought before the assembly and to determine what petitions should be drafted and sent to the company for ratification. Initiating a tradition that would concern legislatures in North America up until the present day, the assembly passed a raft of business regulations, including setting the price of tobacco, in effect, establishing a cartel among the Virginia planters of that valuable crop, and regulating trade with the various Indian tribes in the region, back to Horn. Quote, Further regulations were passed requiring the enforcement of contracts with tradesmen, tenants and servants, and the production of a range of crops such as corn, hemp, silk, flax, vines, and mulberry trees, was encouraged or required. In addition, laws were recommended to prohibit idleness, gaming, drunkenness, and excess in apparel, moral offenses, failure to attend a divine service upon the Sabbath, inveterate swearing after thrice admonition. We interject to note that the notorious three strikes rule preceded the invention of baseball and incontinency, such as whoredom, or dishonest company-keeping with women, were to be punished by ministers and church wardens, as was the practice in England. Settlers were advised also on relations with the Powhatans, maintaining the peace and promoting the conversion of the Indians to Christian religion. Strict laws were passed banning settlers from providing firearms or other weapons to the Indians upon pain of being declared a traitor to the colony and hanged if proven guilty. Back to me, the sum and substance of all of this was indeed a massive reform in the governance of the growing colony. The purpose was, by the standards of the day, transparency and fairness with a dash of consent of the governed. The spirit of the great reforms of 1619 was captured in a famous unsigned letter, probably from an important company investor to a prospective investor, quote, Lastly, the laws set down what lands or immunities every person is presently to enjoy, according to their merit and quality, and what duties they are tied to. Besides many other excellent particulars too long here to write, a copy whereof I will provide you against your coming to London the next term. And these laws and ordinances are not to be chested or hidden like a candle under a bushel, but in a form of a Magna Carta to be published to the whole colony, to the end of every particular person, though never so mean, may both for his own right challenge it, and in case he be at any time wronged, though by the best of the country he may have law to allege for his speedy remedy. In other words, the law will be clear, it will be published, it will be enforced regardless of social rank, 
and it will be interpreted by courts. James Horn, perhaps the most prolific historian of Jamestown writing today, sees the reforms of 1619 as a moment of huge significance. Quote, The beginning of self-government in the form of the General Assembly was one of the most important political events to take place in British North America before the Revolution, and yet its founding is almost completely overlooked. Maybe. I'm not so sure. Yes, the lower house of the Virginia State Legislature is still called the House of Burgesses. And, yes, Sir Edwin Sands promoted the rule of law in Virginia to the Pilgrims, who ended up at Plymouth. But whether or not the General Assembly of 1619 in fact led to American democracy is a bigger stretch. On that question, I will keep my mind open at least until we have looked closely at the beginning of self-government in New England, including in a cabin on a small ship named Mayflower. Before we get to that moment off Provincetown, Massachusetts, however, we will look at the other famous moment from the big year of 1619, the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in English North America. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write us a nice review on Apple. That really does help get the word out. Algorithms being, you know, algorithms. And subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. Search by all the usual means you're well accustomed to. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>